0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome in to another edition of the MacGyver Newsmakers Podcast. I'm Brett Healy, president of the John K. MacGyver Institute for Public Policy, and we are excited to have you join us for a timely conversation with Judge Jim Troupas, former Dame County Circuit Court judge, longtime lawyer here in Wisconsin, who has represented President Trump, President Bush, the Romney campaign, among others, and most recently, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. Judge Troupas is also a redistricting expert, and last but not least, he is a board member of the MacGyver Institute. We are excited to have him here with us today. Given all the recent high profile cases before the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court on ballot integrity, redistricting, whole host of issues, we thought it'd be a great time to talk with Judge Troopas on ballot drop boxes, the recent controversy over the Wisconsin redistricting case, and the state of the judiciary in general. Welcome Judge Troupas. Thank you for joining us. Uh, let's jump right in. The ballot box arguments before the state supreme court—you participated in those arguments. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you saw as you sat there in front of the state supreme court, and they heard both sides make their cases, their case that ballot boxes were allowed or not to be allowed? Sure. So, a little bit of background here is
1: appropriate. Wisconsin. Uh, has led the nation in many of its um, voter integrity and uh, projects. Uh, We have a statute here in Wisconsin, unlike other places in the country, that actually specifies and uh, the principle that absentee voting is not favored, that uh, it is a uh, privilege, not a right, and that as a consequence, it must be, and the statute says this, carefully regulated. Um, Any ballot cast contrary to that absentee statute must not be counted. Again, that's what the statute says. That's not my interpretation of the statute. So following the Trump recount, uh, we had raised, that is the Trump campaign had raised during the recount, and three justices of our Supreme Court agreed with us on these things, that a variety of state statutes had not been complied with, in absentee voting in November of 2020 and the months previous. But the court had also held that some of the items it would not address, the majority would not address, uh, the four-part majority, because we had not challenged it early enough, that you shouldn't be challenging it during a recount, you should be challenging it later. They made that argument all over the country. So subsequently there have been lawsuits filed by various groups in Wisconsin seeking to have those areas of the recount, that is the areas that, the, that were isolated within the recount as problems, and some other areas of problematic voting in absentee brought to the fore well in advance of this coming fall's election uh, in Wisconsin, which has of course extraordinary national implications because Senator Johnson is likely the maybe the swing vote in the United States Senate. So there's a lot of attention here. In that context, a suit was brought that said that our state law prohibits, uh, I call ballot mules, uh, ballot harvesting, call it what you will, um, ballot trafficking, where individuals gather ballots uh, from people and then deliver them to a drop box, ballot drop box. Not the clerk, but a not, drop box. But a drop box, right. So, both, so you have two questions there. One, is the individual who cast the ballot responsible for delivering the absentee ballot to the clerk or to a mailbox? And the second question is, are drop boxes, that is, not a mailbox, and not a clerk's office, a valid way to deliver a ballot. Now, the abuse of the Dropbox, as you know, has been documented all over the country. So people are watching this case everywhere in the country to see how this court's going to come out on the, the Dropbox aspect of this. Um, and, and, it, and that's Senator Johnson, who only recently announced that he would be entering the race, um we came in after the trial of this case and we sought uh, permission from the state supreme court to enter the case at the supreme court level in order that we could in fact address his concerns about the drop boxes so that's what we did the court granted our motion to enter the case as a non-party and uh, the wisconsin institute for law and liberty who brought the case originally um, ceded a portion of their oral argument time to Senator Johnson, and that's what you were referring to in the opening. You said, we actually participated in the case both as oral argument and in briefing to the court. So that's, that's the background of how this all got started. Now, the drop boxes are a, they're a massive problem. I mean, they're, I mean, look, there are a whole lot of people who've, challenged the idea about the election being fair or unfair in 2020. Nobody is making an argument that the drop boxes did not provide an enormous benefit to certain political actors who actually supported them, put them in certain locations, and created ballot traffickers to take the ballots to those boxes. None of what I just said is questionable. This is is just facts. The question, so so you get this sort of split between what is legal and what any sort of rational person trying to run an election in a fair way would want. And I say that because that was the principal argument that Senator Johnson made in the state Supreme Court. And I think it's a powerful argument. It is that we will never have trust in our elections again if we do not put in place the kinds of reasonable, rational, or in the statutory language, careful regulation of these options that were COVID-generated, hypothetically, to which certain political groups took great advantage of. So we take these COVID, we had this, this sort of COVID idea, and we turned it into a permanent solution. Well, that wasn't that wasn't the case. Whether you agreed with Dropboxes or not during the COVID times because of the fear of transmission of a disease, for goodness sakes, we aren't in that anymore. People are out and about and doing what they can so that we don't need them anymore on the criteria that were established, which is we need them for covid we'll be considerate and have them. Our statutes in Wisconsin explicitly say nothing about drop boxes. They they don't mention the term because when the legislation was passed, no one thought candidly, no one thought anyone would, would rationally want such a thing. I mean, this legislation was passed decades ago, and so there's no mention of drop boxes because there are it explicitly says there are two ways to return your ballot. Mail it or take it to the clerk's office. That's all in person to the clerk's office. Exact I'm not making this up. That's the statutory language. So you only get to the question of drop boxes and the use of them as a legal matter if you'd have, a, I'll call it semantic gymnastics, right? You, 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 you take words that no sort of person on the street uh, would read any differently than in person at the municipal clerk means in person like you have to take it there uh to the municipal clerk in the same way as the statute says on election day you must vote in person you can't send your mother-in-law to vote for you and 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 but lawyers are lawyers <laughs> and and this covid exception now swallows the rule and the public doesn't trust elections and senator johnson argued strongly that we have to address this we have to ban drop boxes or put in place rules that are clear and understandable otherwise we can never ask the public to trust our elections and that you you must as a court look at it that way. That this, we have deep distrust of elections precisely because we didn't answer these questions. And and we now know that many of the concerns are real. Nobody's disputing the factual basis of those. And so it's important that the State Supreme Court of Wisconsin weigh in on the language to say that drop boxes are not allowed or alternatively force the parties to rulemaking where everyone could prepare and and have a rule that we all understand, and we don't have a clerk in Milwaukee doing one thing and a clerk in, Duluth, in Superior doing another and a lacrosse clerk and a... You know, everybody doing a different thing. So it's a very good argument. It's an excellent um, presentation by all the parties. There were uh, five different lawyers who presented, all of them superb. The Democrat the lawyers for the Democrats uh, at this is superb. They're A-team. Uh, great argument, um, and I think the court... Um, I don't know how the court's going to come out on it, but they, but they certainly uh, are looking at it very carefully, and it will certainly have an impact on the on the country because everyone's looking to see how Wisconsin, a state that has never had election problems until
0: serious election problems until 2020, how this comes out. So uh, I would, I just want to pause and take a second. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but when I look at the state statutes, I think it's very clear and simple. There are just two ways to vote. Um, but obviously there are some on the far left, their lawyers were in front of the state Supreme Court, who would argue it's not that simple. As, as, as a lawyer, as, as a former judge, can you talk a little more about what you think you see in the statutes? Sure, sure. The,
1: the, as I said, you must start out with a general principle. And I think, again, this is where Wisconsin is a leader in the whole country. Our statute explicitly provides the principles under which the law will be interpreted. So, you know, think about this as a, as a, as a normal citizen, as those who are listening to this podcast. It, isn't it important for the legislature to say, when you look at this statute, whether it's about voter or, or whether it's about medical care, what is the objective of the statute? So we look at language subject to a generic or general principles, um, and this statute does that. So Wisconsin provides in its opening on voting, on, on the voting process, that there are, you can vote uh, absentee or you can vote on election day. Um, we do not have advanced voting there's no such thing in wisconsin you either absentee or you vote on election day if you vote absentee then the principle that will apply is that we you are it is suspect the legal principle the legal principle the statute says we we, we why are we suspect and the statute answers that question it says because as the carter that's former president carter commission said absentee voting is more subject to potential for fraud and abuse than in-person protected voting on the day of election well that's common sense right and it's but it goes further it even says so here's the kind of abuses that happen in advance Uh, you have duress you have open fraud you have people who don't want to vote voting because you force them to vote you have the ballot is not secret it is not a secret ballot you may choose to make it secret right you could you can fill it out you know nobody's watching you fill it out but let's be honest that doesn't necessarily happen if it's in advance so the statute lays that all out and says as a consequence absentee voting will be considered a privilege not a right and as a consequence we will careful we must carefully regulate it and finally these provisions on voting absentee are mandatory. And by mand I mean, what does mandatory mean? It means exactly what it says. It says if it, it says in the next provision of the statute mandatory means that if you do not comply slavishly with every part of this requirement, your vote will must not and cannot be counted. Period. So So there's no room for people to argue that, well, was the intent of the voter or not. No, no, that's just, it's irrelevant. And of course, there's a reason for that, uh, Brett. And and the reason for that is because after an election, as, as is being demonstrated, everybody can argue about, well, did we follow this rule or we follow that rule or, you know, hey, this person really meant to vote and they really wanted to do this and all of that and Oh, you try to prove fraud. Fraud is really hard to prove after the fact. All of that's true. But because the statute begins with a principle that it's privilege, not a right, and further states that if you don't comply slavishly with every provision, your vote doesn't count, that seems abundantly clear. No one reads the statute, not even lawyers. And don't look at that and go, boy, we better be careful. So then we get to the statute on drop boxes and the statute is explicit. It says, the statute they're using, it says citizens who vote absentee may vote, may cast their ballot in two ways. In only two ways. And it doesn't say and only. It just says these two ways. And that's important. That's important to the, democ- to the other side on this. So it says mail it or deliver it in person to the municipal clerk. The Here's voter, what the other side says. The voter must deliver it. It says in, in person. Yeah. 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 So, so this is, I mean, to anybody reading it, again, I challenge any ordinary citizen to read that and come up with any other conclusion. Here's what the other side says. Well, it doesn't exclude drop boxes. Well, yeah, it doesn't exclude delivery by pigeon. It doesn't, it disclu- it doesn't exclude delivery by text message. It doesn't exclude delivery by email. It doesn't exclude delivery by fax. Because we couldn't even come up with all the ways in which your imagination today and in the meta future could come up with casting a ballot. So when the statute says absentee voting shall be strictly construed and mandatory and then says it will be by mail or in person at the municipal clerk, that's what it means, and you, you, the argument on the other side. I mean, candidly, is grammatical nonsense. But being lawyers, being lawyers, they come up with arguments such as, "Well, this provision is passive, and this provision isn't passive." And by that they mean, if it's passive, then it's not restrictive. But if it's active, then it's restrictive. And I'm like, I'm sorry. That doesn't make any sense, um, that that is semantic gymnastics. And given the principle that is to be applied in reading this statute, it, it, that's, that's all it can be. I think it's one of the reasons why the court in the original Trump case, where some of these things were raised, um, glammed onto latches. A principle an ancient principle of law that if you fail to bring it timely then you're excluded from bringing it so that they didn't have to answer the question that you just raised now they've got to answer this question and if they answer it in what the other side would like the democrats and progressives and the like who are running who are asking for this they will have to say that the statute doesn't mean what it plainly means because the grammar is not correct and based on this grammatical reading we have allowed whatever they allow that again that will go a long distance to do what senator johnson is so afraid of and that is distrust of elections if you can't look to the courts to to clearly regulate this type of behavior where can you look and so the The public's distrust of elections began with the failure to address these questions directly and instead all over the country to apply a principle called latches. The courts did it all over the country. It was the Biden team's decision through their lawyers to raise this everywhere. And once they got one court to agree with it, then they just repeated it everywhere else, even if if it was nonsense. Um, And then uh, you have the public looking at these and going – well, you have to answer the question, and then you've got all of the conspiracy theorists and everybody else afterwards. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're right or they're wrong. I don't have to. I do know that it is unquestioned that the failure to address these things in a rational, straightforward way during the Trump recounts has led to deep distrust of our election process. And the state Supreme Court of Wisconsin is going to have an opportunity to correct that not again I, I i'm not i want to be clear the court has not signaled what it's going to do here and the lawyers on the other side are excellent lawyers but from a legal standpoint and from a practical standpoint in its impact on elections this case that we heard last week is going to have an earthquake of re, of of consequences
0: because it's going to affect how people view elections going forward you talk about um uniformity and i i should say mandatory um compliance with the whole statute uh and i think that leads to another question that i hear repeatedly from people and that's the uniformity of election law Uh, and the fact that you have certain municipalities who have their own way of doing things. You know, the famous example was the city of Milwaukee and the city of Madison doing early absentee voting for six weeks, I think it was, back in right. 2020, 2018. Uh, and we obviously, the, the, the Republican legislature stepped in and said, that's not a good idea, that's not fair to the people in Waukesha County, Bayfield, who don't have the ability to, to vote that early Uh, like they do in Milwaukee or Madison. Um, And you mentioned it with the mandatory compliance of the whole statute. Uh, But as this decision is being debated at the state Supreme Court level, we saw the city of Milwaukee clerk openly defy the state Supreme Court Who told the clerks you can't do ballot drop boxes for the April election because we're having we're we're having this debate, we're making this decision. And the City of Milwaukee clerk decided on her own that I'm going to once again do ballot drop boxes despite (laughs) the state's highest court telling her she can't. Can you well there's a but
1: two important points to make there, really two very important points. Number one is sort of a national view, and it began during the Obama administration, that they could ignore court rulings. You know, that, that the court doesn't have an army. You know, the court doesn't have a pocketbook. The court has its prestige and, and a belief in the rule of law. So when, when I hear that cities, for example, on immigration can simply ignore the law and nothing is done about it, that has that's enormously in, a, in it's not only inappropriate but it it undoes our system of law and is pernicious in a horrifying way and so what the clerk did in Milwaukee and I don't again I'm not commenting on what she did or didn't I, I've read the same reports you have that to ignore law and not openly say. I don't like the law, but I'm going to comply with the law, which is what we would have done just a few years ago, but instead say, I'm just going to do what I please because I think it's a good idea, um, should have brought an immediate action by the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin immediately against her. But of course, that doesn't happen either because it's all, and I use this term carefully, but it's all corrupted by this view that began powerfully during the Obama administration that you could ignore the law if you had the power. So second, though, with regard to that, it also points up the incredible wise character of Wisconsin's absentee voting statute, that the ballots cast in that way cannot be counted. So if there had been a close election in Milwaukee, I think you could have made a powerful argument that those ballots can't be counted. You can't count ballots that are cast contrary to the statute. You're not, because we, precisely because we don't know if they complied or not. And it's not enough, especially once you're put on notice, as these clerks were, as the public was, not to take responsibility for it. So. So that's the it, the wise character of Wisconsin statute is those ballots don't get counted, period, end of story. And and um, you know the other example of that here in Wisconsin, of course, is even worse. Even worse is the idea that the Milwaukee clerks correct absentee ballots. So even I, I, what's really fascinating to me is 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 sort of the unequivocal way in which t- the statutes were violated during the. Trump election supposedly because you know we needed to do it because it was covid or something the even worse than the drop boxes which are not provided for um we have a sworn document so when you f- file an absentee ballot in Wisconsin we do not have early voting so every ballot cast prior to the election is you fill it out, the ballot. Then you fill out an envelope. And by the way, you have to request the ballot. So the statute's explicit. You have to request it. Then it is given to you. So you can't just, they can't just deliver it. And then you must fill out the, the cover that says your name, where your address, some other basic information, and then your signature witnessed. So, you know, it's all right there. You, you, you did it. Somebody witnessed it. So you got two people on, online. So the, it's just bizarre to me that the Wisconsin Election Commission said to the clerks, after they'd already been doing it, so it's fait accompli, I, I, I don't want to point fingers at who caused it, that they could correct, correct a legal document. The legal document is the envelope in which your ballot was placed, then it's sealed. You fill it out, and and then you submit it. But what if you left off your street address? What if you didn't tell them who you were? What if you failed to sign it? Well, the statute's kind of interesting, because it actually does consider this, and it says you got to take it back to the person and have them correct it. But no, 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 we don't do that. Milwaukee decided, as did a number of other Um, Democrat municipalities, primarily Democrat, primarily progressive cities, um, that we'll just fill it in. We know Mabel. Oh, we might even go out to the Internet and find out where Mabel lives, and we'll fill that in. Now, is it that Mabel? Is it a different Mabel? What if they didn't know you? So they couldn't fill it in for you, so your ballot doesn't get counted, but they happen to know their neighbor down the street, so they fill it in. That is so gross that you could correct a ballot envelope in any respect. I don't care what it is. It's utterly indefensible. It's, it's indefensible on every level, moral, ethical, and legal. You, the, by happenstance, happen to know the clerk, so you don't have to comply with the law because they'll fill it in later for you but if you if you're just unlucky enough not to be known or happen to be somebody known but is in the wrong political party to them they aren't going to fill it out and your ballot doesn't get counted i mean if there was anything more preposterous than that and yet still and yet still that was allowed and to this day is you know our nobody's stepped in on this it, it just seems so obvious and this is why people don't trust elections because you have unequal unfair treatment one of the things that we argued for senator johnson was if you it's later that you're trying to figure out whether the placement of a drop box is politically motivated although let's be honest come on folks the zuckerberg money in wisconsin went to create a lot of these drop boxes and until you know late in the process the only places that got the money
0: were you know Milwaukee Madison Racine Kenosha i mean seriously this this is important 9 million out of the 10 million went to the five big cities and as you point out that 9 million was out the door early in the 2020 election and then as an afterthought they decided well we better cover ourselves and we'll hand out small $20,000 grants whoever else wants one uh the left isn't being honest on this you're absolutely right all that money went to the five big cities for a reason in a purple state on razors uh, a razor's edge right for a partisan advantage
1: and grossly unequal treatment i mean to me the equal protection clause of the constitution and the voting provisions of the u.s constitution ban this in every possible way i mean there's no it's inconceivable to me that you could have different voting hours, that you could have different locations, that you could have no regulation whatsoever of those drop boxes, among other things that they did, in these cities. Zuckerberg knew what they were doing. I mean, and they and they laughed about it in the Atlantic and other articles that later came out, right? I mean, in January and February, they said, yeah, we rigged the election. Yeah, we did. But hey, no harm, no foul. We, we, we got away with it, didn't we? And they brag about it. And, and and so for us now to hear anyone suggest that somehow they slavishly complied with the law, well, that's, come on, no, no one is saying that and being honest. And as you just pointed out, it's this $10 million that came to Wisconsin. You know, 9 million of it goes early to all of these places. And then they realize, oh, there might be a legal challenge. We better give some money to, you know, uh, some little town in Western Wisconsin. The harm is done But I want to stay there because here's the problem when you have no regulation of this or you're relying on some generic provision that says clerks shall act appropriately, right? Which is, there is a provision like that. We are human. A clerk is human. A clerk in a Democrat municipality like Madison is more likely to put the drop box outside a union hall than outside the Baptist church. Now, it, 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 in some ways, it's not even nefarious. That's just where they think all the people are because they don't have anything to do with those other people. So we you know, we make sure that it, it's there. So you, by putting drop boxes only in locations that they think are the right locations, they're clearly biased. They're biased whether it's honestly biased Bias, just because they all humans are, or nefariously, they're being told where to put them. And, and this is the problem when you do not have careful regulation, the statutory language, in absentee voting. It, it, you don't have to actually think nefariously about the clerks in, in these big cities. They're human. This is what they see. They think they're doing it this way, but they're not. They can't be. And that's precisely why the statutes and why the law of equal protection requires that in the casting of votes, every vote and every voter must be treated alike. You As close to alike as we can, we're humanly flawed, so it won't be perfect. But that's the way it works. So this justification, the Zuckerberg money, the creation of these drop boxes, the correction of envelopes, all share the same characteristic. They require intervention by a human who is by his nature biased in one way or the other. We're told this constantly, right? And we're told it constantly by the left. Well, you're biased, you know, you're you you have white supremacy as a whole. you know, yet when it comes to this, magically, there is no bias, magically. There is no bias by anyone in the creation of these things, yet we know from the election in Wisconsin exactly what happened now. No one doubts that had those drop boxes not been there in the places that they were, had ballots not been corrected in the way that they were, had these and other items not happened, Donald Trump would have won the state of Wisconsin, um... The the question isn't whether he would have won had they not been followed. The question now is: Are we prepared to take the steps going forward to reinvigorate our statutory our statutory structure to get the level of integrity back so that we can begin rebuilding confidence in our elections? It's 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 no longer mythology. It, these are now known facts, and. Again, no one's really disputing what they did. They're saying it was legal, but it's certainly, its whether it was or was not, it certainly abused the statutes in ways we had never anticipated.
0: And I think a lot of uh, voters wonder why we're here. It's clear what the statutes allow and don't allow, and yet we're sitting here today in 2022, having this conversation about a state Supreme Court and many voters think this is fantasy. The statute is clear, you can't do this. And yet it happened. And now we're trying to prevent it from happening in the future. Um, Can you give our listeners a sense? You were there at the state Supreme Court for the debate. Uh, There were uh, accounts about how justices were asking all sorts of hypotheticals on how a vote would be cast or delivered. Can you give listeners a sense of what you saw amongst the Supreme Court justices? I think um,
1: the members of the court were very uh, honest with the parties. I think the questions they asked, as we would have seen in, in the Supreme Court of the United States were questions you'd exp- you'd expect as lawyers, um, given the historical and legal um, principles that these justices have each expo- espoused in other cases. So that's about the lawyerly, that's the lawyerly answer. It's the truthful answer here. It's how we, we perceive <laughs> it. Um, and that each of the justices, in turn, expressed concerns about the statutory language that it could have been written better so i think all seven justices felt that the language could have been written better um and so they're stuck with having to deal with what they have but having said that my peanut gallery comment is everything could be written better Mm -hmm. i mean you know we, we every contract dispute you know everything you yeah well i could write my criminal statutes better
0: as you said earlier when they wrote the statute no one had ever even thought about the possibility of a drop box or some of these other yeah these ballot new technic- I mean, who, who thought about ballot mules trafficking
1: yeah yep. ballot trafficking i mean seriously who thought about that who who thought that was legal I mean, it's just, I mean, I've been representing presidential campaigns since the 1980s. I've been rep- representing senators and congressmen and governors. Those are the kind of cases I've been working on all these years and and uh, for almost four decades. And I mean, until recently, none of these things would even have occurred to people. I mean, they truly wouldn't. There was the garden variety fraud, right? And And that's what, you know, this is what the mainstream media tries to say well look they didn't prove that you know joe took money and then voted a certain way and therefore you know this is all false about the election well that's come on that that's that's poppycock um the the with new technologies and a more nefarious opportunities have come up uh, and that's where we are today We are at that point where members of the Democrat Party and the progressive movement feel that their goal of progressivism and the like justifies doing whatever they have to do. Um, In prior times, many of these things would have resulted, I, I believe, even in criminal charges against various parties. But it doesn't happen anymore. We are in a very different world in our way we view our elections. They are, it, it, they are it's a blood sport. And the consequence to, public, to the public faith in elections is obvious, it's obvious. We have to start somewhere. That's why I said everything I've tried to say here and I, I will always say is that I'll support the Supreme Court, I'll support the law, I support the fine lawyers that are on the other side. Um, we each have clients, we deal with it in that way. But we have to get back to, we, we, if we're going to have elections in the future that people trust, we have to get back to enforcing the law as written. We have to get back to not just the letter of the law, but the moral and ethical underpinnings of a democracy. And that's what's failing. We are failing utterly in this. There is the lack of good faith in, in the drafting of laws these days and the like is, just, is astounding. I mean, as you know here in Wisconsin, which is not applicable perhaps elsewhere, but the governor here could easily have signed a variety of items that the legislature put forward since the Trump election, which could have cleaned these things up. They Even now, and we argued this, Senator Johnson, on his behalf, I argued this last week in the state Supreme Court, why hasn't the Wisconsin Election Commission gone to the legislature and said, let's write a rule on drop boxes? I mean, why not let's just figure it out and and let's do it in good faith ironically um you know the speaker of the assembly and the head of the senate at the time, state senate at the time in, in 2020 were amenable to that i mean they, they, they both were amenable to it it's like why don't we just solve this for covid and let's get a rule and let's go that way but instead of doing that the left can never do legislation because, you know, that would actually require that you compromise, that you put something together that would make sense, solve the problem that the state Supreme Court was wrestling with last week, all seven justices, that it could have been written better. And and the fact that a public agency won't do that, and, and, and WEC's not unique. You know this, and I know this. I mean, I, you know, we keep picking on WEC because they happen to be the the subject of this particular, but this is true with all the agencies. These public agencies, created for the public good, will not work with the legislature because they're controlled by progressives and Democrats in Madison, and they just won't work with the legislature because they don't want to compromise. They would rather take their chance that they can do whatever they want, whether it's in environmental regulation or in voting laws, and, and not write the rules and have agreement have clarity. That's what we need, and that's how you restore confidence in our elections. Is by trusting each other enough to do it that way. That's a maybe. I'm maybe I'm a unicorn, you know, and 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 I believe in unicorns. But the but at the end of the day, if we don't learn how to do that, people aren't going to trust elections. And as we, you know, having spent my adult all of my adult life in the practice of law and in doing election law, uh, that's a sad day. That, that's, that's one I, I really hope we don't have to face. Uh,
0: do, you, do you believe we'll have a decision from the state Supreme Court on drop boxes before long, before the fall election? Certainly before the fall election. I, I apologize, I don't know the date
1: that um, we have a late primary, as you know, in Wisconsin. It's in August. So um, if you come back to the number of days for absentee voting, I believe before absentee voting begins again for the fall primaries, uh, the court will have ruled on this. That's, that's, that's the best I can do in terms of dates. Um,
0: the other big uh, state Supreme Court decision recently that has garnered a lot of interest in, in notoriety is redistricting. Uh, You have uh, many decades of experience in redistricting. (laughs) You and I came to know each other, I think, for the first time back in uh, 2000 or so. Or or even (laughs) before. (laughs) Yes, on redistricting. Late 90s, maybe. Uh, So um, it seems like the progressives and the far left put a lot of time, effort, and money in trying to convince the world, convince Uh, Wisconsinites convinced the state Supreme Court that somehow the maps were unconstitutional here in in Wisconsin or unfair Uh, yet the decision the recent decision that came down from the state Supreme Court seemed to say that the legislature did in fact follow um, long held principles and the Constitution. Can you give us your thoughts on not only the decision, but how we got to this point, and where you think we are,
1: yeah, sure, I'd love to, as you know that 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 was a passion of mine redistricting <laughs> i I actually go back to
0: passion or madness
1: ah uh, both both <laughs> I, I you know I start out in um to do redistricting as a lawyer um appropriately, i think you know you you have to actually like local politics, you know the the, the drawing of maps going back to the late nineteenth century has been. Intensely based upon um, local politics, right? And then it graduates up the land. In other words, you know, we we used to say in Wisconsin, you know, there'd be townships, towns. We have towns here um, that would be German, and right next door would be a town that would be Irish, and next to that would be an Italian, and next to that would be an African American, and we knew all that, right? And it was you gotta you, you gotta love the idea. And I do, of creating communities of interest, people who have, you know, common interests, and then drawing maps that reflect that. That's not unfair. That's that. In fact, that's the ultimate unfairness. That communities of interest, people where they've lived, what they've done, have a right to be in districts that they can influence the outcome of elections. And I, it's a principle I've lived with since 1980, the first case I handled, the Schrage case in the State Supreme Court of Illinois. And um, so it was no surprise that um, African-American communities in the beginning of 1990 began to exercise great influence on the political process through redistricting. Uh, I'm proud to say I worked with many of those groups, um, Uh, the NAACP and others um, in as early as 1980 um, and as you know and then the Hispanic groups in 2000 and 2010 when I participated in the redistricting um, to get from them what they believed their communities would want and so they're talking about local districts we're not talking about big districts not about statewide we're talking about local districts and we and try to accommodate those in a big way ultimately of course that has political ramifications I mean, you, certain communities, vote certain ways because the political process, that's the way it works. So, but beginning with the concept of communities of interest, in this last cycle, in a bizarre, and I mean a bizarre way, the left convinced itself in Wisconsin, not everywhere in the country. I follow the cases all over the country. This didn't happen everywhere. But the weird left in Madison decided what we'll do is we'll, we'll just divide everybody up by their ethnicity when it comes to uh, blacks or Hispanics and and we're going to make them majorities in these districts. Now I say that's weird because... When I talk about communities of interest and the importance of communities of interest, that's not the only thing that you do, and it's certainly not so slavish to use the term I've been using um, that you forget all other principles equal, you know, of of equality and the like. But they convinced themselves that that would be the case, and 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 substantially, I, I was I was genuinely surprised when they came out with a map, the Democrats, that they thought would actually be approved, that was 51% of a certain ethnic group, you know, in this case, the African-American or blacks, and, and, and thought that would pass. First of all, I was shocked that the, the African-American community that I have worked with for decades on these maps would go along with that because having that small a minority, 51%, you're never going to elect the candidate of your choice. I mean, you might, dumb luck. I mean, if in, fact you, if in fact your whole point was that these other groups vote as blocks, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but if that was your point, then what you've just done is you've said, as to African-Americans, you don't have any right to elect anybody because we're going to make it 51% so we can elect all the people except you. You're going to have to definitely vote as a solid block. Of course, courts have addressed this, Brett. They've addressed it many, many times. And, they've, they, and there are many underlying principles. But you can't look at race as a sole criteria to create anything, much less a congressional or a state senate or a state assembly district. You can't do that. I mean, to do that divides this country in tribal ways and is, is an absolute violation of the United States Constitution. It wasn't even a close question. Now, the exception to that, the one exception, is there are Voting Rights Act provisions that have been interpreted to allow you to take into account race, period, you know, just as this this criteria, Very, very difficult to comply with. Very, very difficult. We, you do the best you can, but those provisions were created in an entirely different era in which things were not so clear and or we're much clearer so for the state supreme court of wisconsin where remember in wisconsin this is a state that has voted conservative voted liberal we have a you know we have a, 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 a gay con- senator senator tammy baldwin who's a wonderful person and 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 was elected without a problem you know she got reelected recently um we've had uh um, statewide uh, african-american black candidates elected including our present lieutenant governor and um and of course congress people and members of our legislature and they've been elected in districts that were both white and black as um, mayors yeah I, I, this is this is a wonderful state it, and, and and maybe it's different than everywhere else but the point i you, you and i both know is and and it overwhelmingly voted for obama I mean, I mean. so you, you can't argue that there's some political reason or even that the state has somehow been racist or biased. There's just nothing in our history. It's the exact opposite. This has been a state that has been a progressive bastion going back to the early 20th century and is proud of that. And that, by the way, in Wisconsin is a different use of the word progressive than we use today. But the, so for the Supreme Court to have, for, for the governor evers to have proposed that map and then for four members of our state supreme court to actually go along with it it was so bad it was so obviously a violation of equal protection and other aspects of our constitution and the statutes that the state supreme the u.s supreme court steps in in a matter of weeks in a matter of weeks usually they take years to rule in a matter of weeks reverses it and sends it back i mean it's that bad that, that they didn't even have to hear argument on it. they And it wasn't four to three, okay? Um, at the U.S. At the U.S. Supreme uh, Court. I mean, it wasn't a five to four. It, it wasn't. It, it was, a, you know, there were only, I think, two justices that disagreed with it. So it was that obvious. It was that bad. I am astounded that, that the governor and his people put that forward um, because it was so bad. They just thought they could get away with it our conversation a bit ago about when we talk about they just figure they can ignore the law because they've gotten away with it before in this case they didn't so it comes back to our state supreme court and our state supreme court did the they had only two options in my view and one was precluded by time they could have gone back to trying to draw their own maps but map drawing is really hard it has to be equal population. You have to take communities of interest in account. All these things. It's very difficult to draw maps. Again, you and I have been through this in the district court. I think I have probably tried more redistricting cases than any lawyer in the United States. So I know what, we're, what happens in a courtroom when they try to draw a map. It, it's just, it's so difficult. So um, that's why the Supreme Court Approved the maps here in Wisconsin the last time because they said politics are politics. I mean, we can't, we just can't be a criteria because everybody can interpret politics however they want. So the state supreme court did the right thing. They the second, which is the second option, which was to take one of the maps that it already had in front of it because it had to get it done because this last week was the week people could start filing petitions uh, to get on the ballot. So they did. They 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 just said we got to select one and the next best in the view of four members of the court, uh, was the Republican proposed map, and so they selected it. I I don't think there was any magic, the Republic, it's a good map, it it built on the map that's already been approved, both by the district courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. So from the last cycle, it was built on that with minimal changes. Um, So you you basically have the same map you had before with the changes that were required because of population.
0: Can we go back for a second? you said it was astonishing that Governor Evers would submit that map um, for us lay people out here. Was it just a case of, of partisan um, objective? He was, he was trying to uh, submit a map in hope that he could find four state Supreme Court justices who would agree with him that would give Democrats a huge advantage? Is that what governor evers is trying to accomplish i assume that i don't know that
1: I, I assume that i assume that he did it because of precisely for that reason that they were trying to create a politically biased map without regard to communities of interest and without regard to the ability of certain uh, disadvantaged communities to elect representatives of their choice they thought they could get away with it you know in this time they were reading their own headlines you know we we elected obama you know the courts have been going more and more liberal, more and more woke, we can get away with whatever we want, so they took an enormous risk, enormous risk by the way, just looking at the map that now is in place it's not a particularly controversial map. I mean I think that you know you have some law you have some professors, of course, <laughs> gee, welcome to there's always an expert that'll say what you want them to say right so uh, it, it's you have you know the professorial types now is going well. You see, it's a wildly biased for Republicans and whatever. It, it's just not. It's just not. Um, it, it, it you can the way they do that just for your audience for the audience's benefit. The way professors do this, so they can support maps or not support maps on a political basis, is they select certain elections and then they apply those electoral results against the map and then they say see it's bias well there's one problem the inputs so that you can control the output that it's politically biased by controlling the input that is which elections are you choosing to compare it to so as as um anyone could you could apply the obama elections here in wisconsin against those maps and you know what you'd find you'd find oh my goodness, Democrats could take control. Or you could apply the Scott Walker campaigns and you say, oh, looks pretty even. Oh, maybe, maybe the Republicans have, these are biased to Republicans. Or maybe you could take three or four different elections and put them together and come up with another answer, which is precisely why it courts call it non-justiciable. You simply cannot apply political criteria to a map as a mandatory requirement you, you just can't do it the moment you do that you have put in an element that everyone can abuse you've got to stick with the strict criteria of population compactness a uh, contiguity um, these communities of interest to the extent that you can um, these are understandable they're not manipulatable um, and that's where you that's where it goes and that's what you've got now in this map a republican or democrat could win on this map i think it's probably more republican because the state when you break it up geographically to lower smaller districts the democrats are compacted into much smaller areas so there's almost no way other than gerrymandering other than cutting up milwaukee into 15 different districts that you can you can do anything but have a map that would generally look more republican than democrat but as you and I both know because we've been there for 30 years together is it's amazing how all of a sudden the state Senate just flips Uh, that, you know, that it happens all the time. All politics are local. I have no doubt that the Democrats could
0: win under the map. And,
1: you know, that's the reality of where we are and the Republicans could win under the maps.
0: Um, Any sense if the left who was bitterly disappointed by the recent decision do, do we think they appeal it, and where would they appeal it if they did that? The fact that there hasn't
1: been an appeal filed already, that is to the federal court, so they're, they're not going to go back to the U.S. Supreme Court because that's, that's just not going to happen. So you'd go to the federal district court. That's the likely place that they would, if you are going to challenge these maps now, you'd file it in the federal district court. Um I read the fact that it hasn't happened. It might happen tomorrow. Certainly by the time this podcast broadcasts. But the fact that it didn't happen within hours of the uh, filing means that uh, the other side knows it's a it's a fool's errand to run to the federal courts. Now it's not that you couldn't find an initial judge to do something. You can you know that's, we talked about that before. But um, but the reality is is that the map is is really challenge proof especially because the U.S. Supreme Court has looked at it and especially because the Supreme Court directed precisely to the state Supreme Court of Wisconsin what it could do and it did that so I don't know how what argument you make outside of maybe some individual districts where there may be some technical question Uh, I don't I don't think there's a legitimate challenge that could be filed and I don't I don't I do not see
0: it as much of a risk um I want to thank you for uh, giving your time. This has been uh, very, very informative and uh, interesting. Um, Before we end, and we're certainly going to have to have you back, just covering (laughs) so much ground and so little time, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the state of the judiciary in general? Um, You mentioned uh, wokeness, uh, some of the tactics that uh, opponents have used to try and silence people. Sure. to us a little sure. bit. I'm, about I'm, glad, I'm glad to talk about that. I talked about this in front of the United
1: States Senate. So some of your some of your listeners may remember that in December of uh, 2020, I appeared in the United States Senate, um, and it was broadcast nationally. So lots of millions of people saw it. Is um, and I and I talked there about um, the distressing character of the bar and of the parties be, that they had intimidated lawyers from representing parties they disagreed with that the other side disagreed with this is this this was a path i suppose we saw coming but i was shocked again i use that term rarely i've used it twice today I was shocked at the level of timidity on the part of lawyers in representing President Trump. No one listening to this broadcast has any idea what my political views are, who I vote for, who I don't vote for. I'm a lawyer. That's what I do. Okay? And lawyers represent parties. They represent them, I use the term, aggressive. They are required by the laws, of the ethical laws, the ethical rules that I live by to examine a case and present every non-frivolous argument that I can come up with. The client can say, I don't want you to present that argument, but it is my it is my ethical, moral, under oath obligation to raise arguments I think are non-frivolous before every court. That's how our judicial system works. You could choose a different type of system. You could choose a system that doesn't do that. But in America, since its founding, and since the time of Blackstone, if you want to be lawyers, long before the founding, that we've had the principle that each lawyer will aggressively and honestly represent their clients. And I never fault a lawyer ever for raising arguments that, that are leg- legitimate arguments that other people think aren't legitimate. By the way, they, oh, it's the worst stupid argument. That's unbelievable, blah, blah, blah. But a reasonable extension of the law, I can do it. In fact, if I don't do it, I've committed malpractice. So what was just horrifying was that giant law firms I mean, these are the giants. These are the law firms that make $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 an hour for their time, who had been paid millions of dollars by the Republican Party, by the senators and congressmen, by the president's agencies, the agencies that work for the president, Trump, refused to represent the president on what were obviously legitimate questions about elections. Now, At at the very least, recounts, right? I mean, we had recounts. These are all legitimate things. No one suggested, no lawyer has suggested in any filing, in any court that I have been in, that what we said on behalf of President Trump, at least till now, that it wasn't a legitimate, non-frivolous, reasonable under the law. I, I, I would hope that would always be the case. uh, clearly I I can reject arguments my client wants me to make. But everything I say in a courtroom is going to be non-frivolous and it's going to be a reasonable extension of the law. So as I said at the U.S. Senate, what was amazing is that all these big law firms walked away. Why did they do that? Because they were intimidated. They were literally intimidated. These lawyers you think are so tough and so mean and oh, there's a... They were intimidated. They, they were told, you know, we're going to dox your family. We're going to, as a client, leave you. I mean, I could tell you what my answer was. My answer originally when I was called by the president to represent him in the recount was no. I mean, I've said this publicly, so I've said no, I won't. Look, I, you know, I'm a retired judge. This is the stuff I've done. But, they're, gosh, look at these giant law firms. There's all these law firms. They got a lot more resources than I have, and they are—they've worked for you for years. I mean, just hire them. And I was called the second time, and I said no. And the third time, I called them back, because I heard on the the news on Monday morning, following the election, Tuesday, Monday after the Tuesday election, that these law firms were walking away. That these giant spectacularly successful law firms would refusing to represent the president, not because he didn't have a legitimate argument, but because they were afraid of what might happen to their pocketbooks. I view that as an ethical violation. So it goes. And I called him back to say, given this, I'll be your lawyer. I will proudly be. And I, the next thing I did was I called the president, of the, the former president of our state bar. I was the former president of the federal bar here. And I called him and I said, would, would you join me? And he said, yes, Jim, I'll join you. And he came on our team. A- and the reason was because it's the right thing to do. And what is unbelievable to me is that bar associations around the country are accepting complaints now against the conduct of those lawyers you see the left is so bad almost evil in a legal sense from a lawyer standpoint that they will bring actions against those lawyers who represented trump it, not to win them not to win them because they won't but to intimidate those lawyers so that they won't represent parties in the future that disagree with the liberal, woke ideology. Until courts start and bar associations start ignoring those and imposing legal fees against the parties that bring those, that's gonna continue. And until lawyers and law firms learn that we cannot have a system where lawyers do not aggressively, openly represent the best interests of their clients, if we can't have that, our legal system dies. And, and it is, I said that at the U.S. Senate in December of 2020. I am saying that now. I have said it over and over. Bar associations have to be incredibly careful in accepting any complaints against any lawyers and certainly the lawyers who have represented unpopular causes. Our, we have a history goes back to the beginning of the republic where the best lawyers, have represented the most objectionable clients you know the british soldiers when it's when it's john when it's john adams right and and that's really important it's important that the best lawyers become the judges that the best lawyers represent the worst the most hated clients because our system works when that happens and when it doesn't happen, when we act as judge and jury before people are ever brought before a court and the evidence is ever presented because we as lawyers don't like the tenor or the color or whatever it is of a client, we are in a world of hurt. And I, as I said, it, you know, someone like myself taking on this, the, the, the Trump case, to some sense I was immune from this because you know I'm past the time when I'm concerned about clients or anything like that. But at the same time, it hurts. It really, really hurts. I'm telling you this as a lawyer, someone who's practiced law for more than four decades, who is very proud of the work I've done always. And sure, I've made mistakes, but man, it hurts when a bar association or anybody else suggests I've done something inappropriate, even though I know it's wrong. I mean, I know that. But think about the lawyers who aren't, don't have the luxury I have of being Beyond the time when I'm worried about my children or my income or anything like that. So I think that's that's what we have to be fearful of. And folks, if you aren't fearful of that, if then you're not paying attention, you are not paying attention.
0: Here we sit two years later, since uh, you appeared before the U.S. uh, Senate. Uh, have we seen any instances around the country where a court or a judge has stepped in to say this behavior by the far left is inappropriate, illegal? Um, have we, have no. We, no, no, we have no. The opposite. The opposite. We've had courts say
1: in the most, the strangest decisions where they say things like, because this election was so serious, it's, elections are so serious, you shouldn't have raised those points. Huh? Huh? It's the reverse. Precisely because elections are the most important thing we have. We have to have lawyers who, are, who have the ability and the, and the guts to raise the hard issues. Because if we don't raise those, our elections are meaningless. It is exactly the reverse of what these judges have said exactly the reverse this is the one area where we should encourage lawsuits where we should encourage challenging election results why because otherwise we give in to dictatorship of the left that's what's going on now and we have judges who who literally that's such an unthinking statement but i've you know they've been made all over the country it's because what happened on january the 6th we must you know we've really got to you know take down these people wait a minute you're forgetting that on January the 5th, there were very serious questions about the way in which this election was conducted. And no one disputes what I'm about to say. The election is questionable. I didn't say it was stolen. I didn't say anything like that. But what I did say, and no one is disputing it, is, is that this election was in effect rigged by a variety of tactics that at the very least at the very least were on the edge of the law and and we can't let that happen again we can't let that happen again and we can't have courts questioning the integrity of the lawyers and the like who raise these these arguments and, and 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 bring them to the fore we should celebrate those lawyers. I would celebrate them on the left, and I have in the past. Those who have known me have known that I have openly supported you know, judges and lawyers who faced serious question because they were supporting some left-wing items, and I've been there saying, folks, don't you dare. These are great lawyers and great judges, and they are doing the best they can. We all make mistakes. So um, we, need a, we need to get back to that. We need to get back to supporting a legal system that is independent, that once its decisions are made, those decisions are followed, and that we all honor the great judges, um, whether it's our state Supreme Court and the seven members of our court or whether it's the district court judges or U.S. Supreme Court. We have to stop this criticism, certainly as lawyers, of, of what they're doing. They're doing the best they can, and we have got to give those judges courage Because they're faced the same problems that those lawyers do don't be intimidated by the left make the right decision do the best you can and um and we we certainly have to have um the bar and others
0: get back to that what i view as the most ethical and appropriate way of dealing with this judge shrupas again i want to thank you for your time this has been great uh wish we could keep the conversation going for hours and hours but unfortunately i, I, I think uh probably already a bit too long i apologize we'll, no, i don't we'll mean to talk to too much right? we'll have to have you back clearly uh sounds like despite your desire to retire and uh, <laughs> spend time with the uh, family and the grandkids sounds like more than ever we uh, we need you here on the front lines fighting uh, for all of this so i want to thank you for that as well uh please come back and uh thank you again for your time thank you If you're new to the podcast and you like what you hear, make sure you get every MacIver Newsmakers podcast delivered directly to your device. Don't miss a single interview with the key newsmakers in Wisconsin and beyond. Be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast app, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. And make sure you share the podcast with your friends, your family, and those in your life that could use some exposure to common sense. If you have an idea for the podcast, send us an email at info at or follow us on Twitter at, at report. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, any ideas for guests you'd like to hear from, comments, criticism, or whatever else is on your mind. Thanks again for listening to the MacGyver Newsmakers podcast. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight.